morning again. My name is Brad Cheney. If we haven't met before, we've started a new sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. It's interesting how the Gospel of Luke doesn't start with Mary or Joseph or Jesus or John the Baptist. It starts with uh, an infertile couple who are now probably in their mid-50s, certainly well past childbearing age. Their names are Zechariah and Elizabeth. And we're told here at the beginning of the gospel that they are an extremely godly couple. If you look at verse 6 with me. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and keeping all of God's decrees blamelessly. So in terms of personal morality and religious purity, uh, these, this older couple is as good as it gets, really. They're the model Israelites. She comes from a priestly line. He is a priest himself. They were, according to Luke, quote-unquote, blameless in all of their observances of, of following the Torah. That is why verses 8 to 11 uh, would have would have been Zechariah's the very best day of his life, the greatest day of his life. I don't know what you would say was the apex of your life, the very best day, but verse 8 is his uh, absolute best day. We read, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, what may seem like an expected job for a priest going into the temple burning incense was not actually all that expected because in their day, there were some 18,000 priests. And what you would do is you're broken up according to division and your division would go to Jerusalem and you would serve for one week there in the, the, uh, in the temple area. Um, but the incense was only burned twice a day. So out of those 18,000 priests, only 14 of them um, would have this opportunity uh, in any given week. So to be chosen to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, was, it was like winning the lottery, really. And Zechariah has now been chosen by Lot for this purpose. So once we get to verse 10, we're we're supposed to feel something of the emotional intensity of this opportunity. Uh, It's 9 o'clock in the morning. The massive temple gates swing open. And Zechariah, with deep reverence in his heart and a sense of just amazing anticipation, enters into the holy place all by himself, to burn the incense, which was a symbol of the prayers of the people for the hope of the Messiah who was to come. Directly in front of him in the holy place would have been the altar on which the incense would be lighted. And beyond the altar is the place that was called the Holy of Holies, that room where the the presence of God was most intensely experienced. And into that room, room, only one man would go once a year, the high priest, on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. What was separating those two walls, if you remember, or those two rooms, rather, was a curtain 
a very large curtain that was supposedly the thickness of a large man's hand. That curtain served as a giant no entry sign, like no trespassing. Do not come in into the presence of God. And Zechariah is standing right in front of it when suddenly we read that on the right-hand side of the altar, an angel of the Lord appeals to, appears to him and says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the Lord's presence. Verse 13, if you can look there with me. And the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will bring back many of the people of, the, of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord and the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So it's finally happening. You know, this is all of the language of the Old Testament prophets. They're found on the lips of this angel. The 400-year silence of God is finally over. You could say Aslan is on the move. You know, God is stirring. The prayers of the Messiah are now to be answered. To which, if you turn your page, Zechariah responds to this in verse 18. Do you see his response? He says, well, how can I be sure of this? For I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. It's like, I know you're an angel of the Lord, but our biological clocks have stopped ticking a long time ago. It's, it's supposed to be a bit comedic here. Um, Zechariah, he says, he says, how can I be sure? Can you give me a sign? And God's probably like, I gave you a sign. It's an angel. It's the archangel Gabriel. What more of a sign do you need? He's not a mannequin. <laughs> Before we continue the story, kind of as an aside, you know, um, I just, I think this is interesting or funny about our lives. Oftentimes, we will come to a point where we are looking to God to give us direction. Uh, I need I need you to make clear to me, God. We pray for clarity. Show me, should I go this way or that? Should I do this or that? We say, open the door and close all other doors. Make it just abundantly clear to me what you want. And I think this story is God's way of saying, you know, even if I sent an angel, you would probably still waver in your faith. Um, even if I made it abundantly clear, this happens all the time in the Bible. You have a character and God makes it abundantly clear, but they still struggle to, to believe. So I think we're not supposed to be too hard on Zechariah because we wouldn't have done any better if we were in his shoes. It is a bit ironic, though. You have the best of Israel, an upright and religious man, going through all of the rituals associated with the, uh, the performance of his office as a priest. And yet he struggles to believe that God can still do miracles and work uh, miracles in his wife's womb. Well, what happens next? As a result of all of this, Zechariah is struck with muteness. 
He is unable to talk for nine months until his son is born. You say nine months of complete silence. That's the introvert's dream, right? (laughs) Introverts would be like, curse me, Lord, this way. But Zechariah was an extrovert, so it was a curse. No, I don't know, but... Oh, I forgot one thing. I want to remind you that there was actual precedent for this, important precedent for this in the Bible. Having an old man and an old woman give birth to a son well past their childbearing years, where else does that prominently factor in the Old Testament? Yeah, Sarah and Abraham. I mean, they are the quintessential barren couple, and it is from them that the entire line of Israel comes. And so I think we're supposed to see something here uh, of a symbolism. You know, in other words, Israel is about to be born again. A new Israel or a renewed Israel is about to come who is prepared for the Messiah. And then Gabriel says to him, Zechariah, God has got big plans for your little boy. Your little boy is going to be a world shaker. Um, God has set him apart like Samuel, and he will prepare the coming for the Messiah. He will turn, and this is my favorite expression, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to whom? To their children. Like, what an expression. What does it look like to have a people who are prepared for the coming of the Messiah? It looks like this. Healed relationships among families. The hearts of the fathers turn towards the sons and daughters. That is the renewed Israel. It looks like healed families and healed relationships and communities. It's very beautiful, I think. So while all of this is going on inside of the temple, inside of the holy place, the people are outside waiting for Zechariah to come back. It was the custom of the priest after he had offered the incense to return to the people and to pronounce upon them a benediction at the conclusion of their morning prayers. So they're out there, maybe on the steps of the temple, on their knees, and their knees are growing a little sore at this point, and they're waiting for the priest to come out. He's taking such a long time. What's going on? And he finally comes out, and instead of being able to pronounce the benediction, All he can do is gesture with his hands and his arms and uh, trying to explain to them what has happened. Like, how do you explain that an angel has visited you if all you have are your arms and your hands? Again, it's supposed to be somewhat comedic. Well, then we fast forward nine months into the future. A son has been born to Zechariah and Elizabeth. They named this son John. He goes on to become John the Baptist. John, incidentally, that name means simply the Lord is gracious. So they name him the Lord is gracious because they had no business having a child this late in life. And in verse 64, it's almost as if when he sees the child for the first time, it says immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was set free and he began to speak praising God and it is It is this song that pours out of this man. It's the first words that he's spoken in nine months' time. And we read verse 67. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, Blessed be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. 
He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he has said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all those who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, you will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the day spring will come to us from heaven Verse 79, literally, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the path of peace. Amen. I think most people today can't imagine what life would be like without the internet. We become so accustomed with the instantaneous stream of information. And you've probably heard the stats before. I think the average cell phone user touches their phone. It's been recorded. Average cell phone user, not heavy cell phone users, but just the average guy touches his phone 2,617 times a day. If you were to take away from us our cell phones and the internet and radio and television, what would we think about all day long What would we do with all of that mental time on our hands? As one author put it, many would be, quote, lost in a world of their own familiar, uh, their own unfamiliar thoughts, like an explorer whose guide has just disappeared. (laughs) Of course, this was the, the situation of everybody in Jesus' day. And that's been the situation of the majority of human beings throughout human history, Zechariah, what would he have thought about with all of that time on his hands? Certainly he would have thought about his family, his local village, quite possibly his health. But beyond those obvious concerns, the deeper matter I'm convinced that he would have given his attention to is the fact that his people were suffering. They were suffering at the hand of their enemies. Wicked rulers have come from far away with hatred in their eyes and weapons in their hands and darkness and death have settled over the land. He must have thought about that. He must also have dreamed of God's deliverance, of God's making things right again, just as the prophets had predicted. I think that Zechariah, he, surely he pondered both the agony of the present and the, the hope, the brilliant hope of the future that God had promised. And when he sees baby John for the first time, not only is he seeing his son for the very first time with, uh, with his own eyes, and, if, and dads, can you remember that moment? The very first time you saw, you know, you're in the, the delivery room and you see them for the first time and how utterly incredible that is. When he looks at John for the first time, it's not merely the excitement of this is my boy. It is the excitement that a new age has dawned. The age that I have been dreaming about and waiting for and praying about. At last, 
The promise is being fulfilled. And finally, God is doing something at a time when we are sick and tired of oppression. I mean, just think of the, the excitement that he must have felt. And he talks about here the covenant that God made with Abraham and David. How God is fulfilling the promises of the covenant. And Zechariah's song emphasizes the fact that that now all of the Old Testament is coming true. So the song that is written here, uh, you may not know it, it is entitled the Benedictus. And it comes from, that title comes from their very first word in the Latin translation. Uh, Interestingly... Many Christians down throughout church history would sing the song regularly, almost on a week-to-week basis. I don't know quite the history of the liturgy of how Benedictus was kind of lost to our Sunday morning worship, but the uh, the majority of Christians who've lived in the world over the last two thousand years have sung Benedictus. and have memorized Benedictus. And they had their own tunes for Benedictus. And almost, Susie, like we, should, we should do that ourselves here. But it was a weekly reminder that God is, uh, is, is, is bringing about this great deliverance. One other thing I might note about the song before we move on. And that is much of the song could be read simply as the celebration of what we would call political salvation, deliverance. He talks about deliverance from our enemies, which had to have meant deliverance from Rome and deliverance from Herod. And all of that probably is in view. But God is going to do something beyond a worldly salvation. He's going to open the door onto a whole new world where the forgiveness of sins comes to all people where death is defeated finally at the last. And can we look at verse 78? Why will this happen? Verse 78 tells us this will happen because of the tender mercy of our God by which the day spring will come to us from heaven to shine on those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet in the path of peace. Zechariah likens the coming of the Messiah to what? To the break of day, to the day spring, to the first rising of the sun. And he is going to burst on Israel, and from Israel he will burst out upon the world. A few years ago, there was a book published by Barbara Demick entitled Nothing to Envy, The Ordinary Lives of Those in North Korea. Anybody have read that before? Nothing to Envy? It's a book that does pretty much just that. It traces and follows the lives of ordinary North Koreans in, uh, uh, you know, It's kind of fascinating because it's the most closed country in the world today. And it gives you a behind-the-curtain look at what their lives are like. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, By the end of the book, she goes through and she gives her acknowledgments and thank yous for all the people who had made the writing project possible. And one of the acknowledgments she gives is for the German photographer who accompanied her through North Korea and you know, took photographs of the entire, uh, the, the entire company, c- country. 
The photographer includes an observation at the end of the book that is haunting, and I want you to hear it because it's such a powerful metaphor, I think. Um, Well, just hear it. (laughs) He says, Inside the city, he noted, the unusually large number of people squatting in a position that is almost emblematic of North Korea, knees bent up to the chest, balancing on the balls of their feet. He says, in other places in the world, people are always doing something. But here in North Korea, they're just sitting. It is a North Korean phenomenon that many have observed. For lack of chairs or benches, the people sit for hours on their haunches, along the sides of roads, in parks, in the market. They stand. They stare straight ahead as though they are waiting. Maybe they're waiting for nothing in particular. Maybe they're just waiting for something to change. Have you ever heard of that before? The whole country, they just sit like this for hours and hours. Zechariah speaks here of a people that sits in darkness, just waiting for something to happen. What stands out to me the most when I read the Benedictus is how we as the Church of Christ have a responsibility during Advent season to to pray, to pray for all people's who are just sitting in darkness in their haunches, waiting for something to happen. Um, I, I don't know how much of your Advent so far you've spent towards in praying for things like that. I know that we get so busy. I've been so busy. I haven't prayed anyth- anything along those lines to pray that the day spring from on high would appear and to shine, to gloriously break in and shine upon All peoples that are sitting in darkness. Of course, you don't have to go all the the way to North Korea to find people who are struggling in the darkness. Um, It can be a season of darkness, can't it? After all the presents are open and the stockings are empty, the meal is over, we always find ourselves scratching our heads, kind of asking ourselves the question, is this really it? Despite all the music and decorations and parties, Christmas blues are real, and Christmas hangover is heavy. Uh, We have all these expectations for the perfect Christmas and the wonderful life, and all the TV shows reinforce for us the expectations of the perfect family Christmas. Uh, And sometimes the holidays bring families together, and other times the holidays set off a grenade in the middle of the living room. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to pray I would ask you to please begin praying for all those people in your life who are far from God and who do not yet know the day spring. Really, uh, who, who is in the shadows? Who do you know that is dwelling in the shadows? Who are they? Name them and plead that the Holy Spirit would do this for them, that he would open their eyes to the glory and beauty of Jesus. Amen? And just ask God to give you the chance to speak to them the gospel and to do so 
in a, a wise and, and, and to have the boldness, frankly, to do so. To shine upon them the light of the world. Let me close with the story. It's the story of Ernest Shackleton. Shelton has told it before. Back in 1914, Shackleton was a British explorer. He took a ship named the Endurance to Antarctica. And he and his crew were going to walk across the entire continent of Antarctica on foot. They would be the first ones to go by the South Pole and traverse the entire continent by foot. Only what happened? They didn't get there. Well, they got stuck in the polar ice. The endurance was caught in the polar ice sheet, and it was being crushed by the ice, so they had to abandon ship. And instead of this story of conquering, it becomes a story of just bare survival. You know, as Shackleton, in all of his amazing leadership, he leads this crew um, to, to endure several just terrible months down in Antarctica. And I think, did he, Shelton, did he bring all of them back safely? Did anybody die on the I don't think a single man ended up dying on the expedition, which was incredible. One of his biographers who later wrote about him and the story, one of them said that of all the things Shackleton and his crew faced down there, of all the terrible things, starvation, incredibly cold temperatures, what do you think was the worst that they experienced in Antarctica? It was the darkness. It was the South Pole from the mid of May to like late July, early August. The sun doesn't shine there at all. There's no daytime. There's no sunlight for about three months. The biographer goes on that in all the world, there is no desolation more complete than that of the polar night where there is no warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without the sun day after day and week after week. Who does that describe? Spiritually, who does that describe? You know, Christians, we get worried every year about the commercialization of Christmas. We say Christmas has become too corporate. Christmas is too materialistic. Of course, that's all true. But the far greater danger than the commercialization, the far greater danger is to, is to forget, friends, that you have what everybody else in the entire world is looking for. Everything, everybody is looking for what you've got, the light of Christ. And so you must bring it to them. Um, is there anyone in your life who is stuck in the polar nights, who are truly suffering without sun day after day and week after week? Will you, will you let your heart go out to them again? And will you take the gospel to them? Let's bow our heads to pray. If you know anybody who is in a place of deep darkness right now, pray this. O day spring, splendor of the eternal light and son of justice. 
Come and enlighten those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. O Christ, light of the world, shine upon us. Healer of the world, make your face to shine upon us and make the shadows flee. Amen.